Welcome back to this to the Barbarians podcast, episode 30, Theodorid Rises. Okay, so the goal for this episode is to basically jump around the Empire and the timeline a little bit, just to kind of tie up some ends, give some information about some different things that are going on in the Empire that have, do, or will have a lot to do with our Goths in a very near future. So it's going to be a little bit scattered. Some of the research was hard to find for this episode, but we're going to try and pull it all together because we're aiming towards Attila the Hun and the Catalonian Plains and that battle, that famous battle that took place in 451. So we're going to spend this episode and the next episode really trying to set up that battle and how we get there and deal with that battle and its aftermath uh, in the near future. Last time we got together, Valia, king of the Visigoths, was able to establish a kingdom of sorts within the Roman Empire in the Garonne Valley of Aquitania in southern Gaul. Now he quickly disappears from our story, and Theodoric I, about 28 years of age, is made the new king of the Visigoths. Not much is known about Theodoric I, or how he is sometimes called Theodoric, including his childhood. I'm going to call him Theodoric so that we can clearly differentiate this man from the later Theodoric the Great that we will be talking about in several episodes. I'm going to be calling him Theodoric so that we can clearly differentiate this man from the later Theodoric the Great that we will be introducing in several episodes. We do think that he married one of Alaric's daughters, who could give birth to several children that would eventually take over as leaders of the kingdom after his reign concludes in over 30 years. After Theodoric's reign is over, no less than four of his sons will take the throne of the Visigoths. Now, let's take a quick look at what is happening in this new kingdom for the Visigoths. Do a couple quick hitters here, fact-wise, just kind of get everyone up to date on what is going on. So, as they are establishing themselves in Aquitania, up and down the Atlantic seacoast, all through Europe, Saxon pirates are raiding settlements. This will have more of an impact in places like England than it will in our story, but the unseaworthy Goths will never mount a real defense of any sort against these pirates. Therefore, the little bit of actual coastline will never be developed properly and trade will never be developed. Seaworthy trade, that is, uh, will be developed by the Visigothic Kingdom. And I'll put some maps of all these things on the Facebook page and put some up on Twitter to help. In 422, the Visigoths would have to honor their fetus for the first time, according to our sources with the Romans in Spain. They would be fighting against the Vandals under the Roman general Castinus in Betica, southern Hispania. As we all remember from previous episodes, the Vandals were settled in Hispania, present-day Spain, just over the Pyrenees Mountains. They were now united, both Astingi and Salingi, with the Alans since their defeat at the hands of the Visigoths in 418, under the Vandal king Gunsaric. According to our sources, as the Goths marched into Hispania, with the Roman army, they deserted right before the battle, and the Romans were soundly defeated. 
Theodoric took his troops back to Aquitania, but the Romans did not retaliate for his betrayal. The sources do not have an explanation as to why the Goths betrayed the Romans or the reasons that the Romans did not punish the Goths afterwards. But we do know there are lots of gaps that are not filled in for us because of the lack of sources for this time period. Just to add uh, one more idea, uh, there was a Goth named Veto that was sent to Hispania in 431 to try to seek out a truce or an agreement of some sorts with the Suebe, who were then in the northwestern portion of the peninsula. This just gives us a little bit more context in Hispania and the greater idea of how the Goths are still trying to be involved in Hispania, but not directly under Roman control. Now, as always, events outside the Goths' control would have a large impact on their interactions with the Romans and others. A factor that would have an impact occurs in 423 when Emperor Honorius dies. This probably meant the end of the Fetus with the Goths or Theodred saw it as an opportunity to improve upon this agreement. Because we do see the Goths attacking Roman cities in southeastern Gaul every fighting season for the next couple of years. Now, these attacks never seemed to be too focused or overly directed, so they probably were intended to continue the political gamesmanship where the Goths would threaten a city like Arles or Narbonne or Marseille and make the Romans give them more concessions. The Romans seemed to have reacted to these moves, but they never did make a serious threat to attack the Goths in their homeland turf of Aquitania. It can be assumed that the Romans did not have the strength to defeat them, nor could they afford to get rid of them, as they were still vandals in Hispania, Breton rebels in northwestern Gaul, and Gaul itself still not completely secured under Roman taxation systems yet. In 425, the city of Arles is attacked again, but this time the Romans under Aetius, a name that we will need to remember for a little while, stops the Visigoths and unable to effectively counter them. There is another attack on Arles in 430, this time led by a mysterious Visigothic general named Anulsus. It is to be assumed that this Anulsus and his followers were from the Visigothic kingdom, based in Aquitania, as there is no other way a Goth would be able to muster this kind of effort this deep in the Western Empire at this time. Idacius, the source for this Visigothic leader, tells us nothing of the origin of Anulsus or much of the lead-up for our story, but we are told that Aetius defeats them, capturing Anulsus and massacring his followers. There's going to be some wrangling and vying for the Western Emperor crown for a couple of years, years that certainly involved the Visigoths, but we do not have much in the way of sources for this period. So from 423 to 425, we see various interested parties making plays on the crown for emperor in Western Rome. But eventually, in 425, Valentinian III, the six-year-old son of Constantius III and Gala Placidia, yes, that Gala Placidia, will take the throne. Now, since Valentinian is only six years old, he will need a regent. So who might we discover to be the real power behind young Valentinian? His mother, Gala Placidia. I told you, you needed to remember her. She is important and will remain important for some time. 
Bella Placidia would still be in Ravenna following the death of her last husband, Constantius, but would leave sometime in 422 or 423. There is some scandal that may have resulted in her exile to Constantinople to the care of her cousin Theodosius II, the Eastern Roman Emperor. Supposedly, Honorius was expressing some want for his half-sister, Galla Placidia, and she seemed to be trying to manipulate his feelings. There's no corroboration to this salacious story, but it makes for good copy, so I tell it now. After Honorius dies in 423, a man named John or Joannes, backed by Aetius, was declared emperor as Galla Placidia brought her son Valentinian back to claim the throne backed by the troops from the Eastern Empire. John or Joannes would eventually be captured and executed, and Valentinian would be established as Valentinian III, Western Roman Emperor. So now, shifting gears here, but staying with the idea of unrest for the Romans, the Vandals, at this time in 429 pack up 80,000 people and sail across the Strait of Gibraltar to northern Africa to attack the Romans. Now, we do not know exactly why the Vandals left Hispania to go to northern Africa, but many think that Bonifacius, the Roman governor of the African province, invited him. This is the same general who defeated the Visigoths at the siege of Massilia, or Marseille, in 413 under Atolf. He's now the governor of the Diocese of Africa, and we think that he invited the Vandals into Africa because, basically, he didn't really stop them. I will be covering the Vandals' invasion of Africa much more in depth later on in the podcast, but it is important to us in order to give us context for what is going on and wrong around the empire. At the same time, the Visigoths are attacking cities and territories in southern Gaul as Ravenna is trying to take in the fact that one of their governors is allowing a large group of vandals to grab a foothold in the area of the province near the breadbasket of the empire. The Romans need to make sure that Bonifacius is still providing the grain shipments to Italy so that the people can be fed. It is said that Galla Placidia, who Bonifacius was a strong supporter of, was manipulated by Aetius into creating a rift between the two. Bonifacius then invited the Vandals to Africa as he was afraid that Galla Placidia had turned her back on him and was going to send an army to northern Africa to take his power away. Whatever the case, the Vandals came to North Africa and things would be changing soon for Bonifacius. A little on Bonifacius, he was married to a woman named Pelagia, who was the daughter of Baramundus, who was an Ostrogoth of the Amal family. Now, at this time, what we would eventually call, but not quite yet, the Ostrogoths were still under the control of the Huns. The Huns were still north of the Danube in modern-day Romania, Moldova, and Ukraine, areas that we're very familiar with in our story, and we used to call Cthulhu what we will call the Grithungi right now, were conquered by the Huns way back in the mid-300s, which we all remember was the impetus for the Trevingi entrance into the Roman Empire in 376 and the eventual formation of the Visigoths in the 390s under Alaric. So we're going to use this time to catch up on our Grithungi and what they have been doing for the last several decades. So as I mentioned a minute ago, the Grithungi 
were subjected by the Huns in the mid-300s. But the nature of the Hunnic kingdom, which we'll explore in depth at a later time, were that they did not necessarily absorb other people as much as they forced them to operate under their own people and rulers, but pay tribute to them and to fight side by side when called upon. In 435, Central Gaul rebelled against the empire in Ravenna. And clearly, some of these Gruthungi would not be satisfied under Hunnic rule, so they would leave into the empire in, for, at various points, like we saw with Fritigern and his group of Goths, and many would have influence throughout the empire. There's even one, Vederic, we would call. He's an Amalgoth, so an Ostrogoth, what we'd say an Ostrogoth in the future, is fighting for the Romans at this very time as well. So as the Huns continue to build influence and grow, and they will be very important to our next couple episodes, the Ostrogoths are serving them and working under them as they not only attack portions of the Roman Empire in the east, such as what we would call modern-day Armenia and Turkey and down into Syria and places that are Arab-held countries today, but also still raiding into Mo Moesia, but also still raiding into Moesia and other parts of the European side of the Roman Empire. Okay, so let's go on to some other things that are happening in the Roman Empire that affect our Goths. So in 435, Central Gaul rebelled against the Empire in Ravenna, a peasant revolt in this area between the Loire and the Sien rivers. Gaul at this time is a place of change. The Visigoths are in Gaul south by southwest, based in the Grand Valley, but they're exercising their influence into Septimania in southeastern Gaul. Northeast Gaul is filled with Franks that are vassals of the Romans. Northwest Gaul was filled with cantankerous Bretons in modern-day Brittany. Much of the rest of Gaul also had barbarian groups that were being settled somehow and or mixing in with the Gallo-Roman population. The Goths would attack various areas trying to spread their influence. The Rhone River region in 436 was attacked, and then... It's, they laid siege to the city of Narbonne through 437. Then Aetius's key general, Latorius, using Hunnic warriors, broke the Gothic siege and resupplied the populace of the city. The next year, Latorius defeated the Visigothic armies and began to position himself to lay siege to the capital of the Goths in Toulouse. The Goths were once again in a difficult situation. They were faced with defeat and began to try to negotiate with the Romans while they still had some leverage. It is reported that Latorius refused any negotiations and continued with the siege. It is then, all of a sudden, a reversal of fortunes when the Goths capture Latorius, execute him, and defeat the Roman army. The sources paint this as a victory of God over the godless as Theodoret was a Christian, an Arian, but still a Christian, and it appears that Latorius was a pagan Roman. So even well into the 5th century, there are still important Romans that practice the old pagan religions. This victory puts our barbarians in a position of power. It solidifies 
the Gothic power, it, not only in their area of Toulouse and the Garonne Valley, but in Greater Gaul itself. Meanwhile, the Vandals and the Romans reached an agreement in 435 to pause their war in Africa to cease military operations for the time being so that the Vandals could resupply and regroup their forces and the Romans could deal with other threats in the empire. One of these threats that is on the near horizon is a group of people that have complicated relationships with Rome that would soon become more complex and tumultuous. In the mid-430s, an East German group called the Burgundians, who by this time had established a base of power in eastern Gaul, around the city of Borbotogomagus, which is modern-day Worms, Germany, in which I think I destroyed both those pronunciations. The Burgundians, under their king Gundahar, had continued attacking Roman towns in what would be modern-day France, and therefore earned the scorn of the empire. Aetius, Magister Militum at the time, brought in a large army. Aetius, Magister Militum at the time, brought in a large army of Huns to defeat and massacre the Burgundians. This long and complicated history of the Huns and Romans will be discussed at a later time when the podcast gets to the Huns solely, but they will continue to shape our current narrative for the next several episodes. These mysterious warriors will turn against Rome once again, as they and many other federati have in the past, and shape the story of the Goths at large for the next 300 years. And that is where we will leave things off this time. So some of the sources that we used uh, in this week's episode were Goths and Romans 332-489 to by Peter Heather, The Goths by Herwig Wolfram, once again, The Fall of the Roman Empire by Peter Heather, Barbarians Within the Gates of Rome by Thomas Burns. If you like this show, please give a review on iTunes, Podbean, or the platform of your choice. Those reviews, as many of you already know, have a real impact on how many and who gets exposed to the podcast. Check out the History of the Barbarians Twitter accounts and Facebook pages for more information and some maps and some things to give us a little bit more background. And... As many people around the country, the world, are being cooped up here because of COVID-19, I think what a lot of us can do is try to work on our podcasts and push more things out there. So I'm definitely going to be spending more time on the podcast, writing more episodes, recording more, trying to get quite a few more out to the world, and hopefully you're finding some enjoyment out of it, some use out of it. I appreciate the listen, give you a big thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.